spent a lot of time in the woods with my dad. And it might be because uh, my mom was working, uh, and so, you know, on the weekend or something, and so my dad would just kind of take us with to do whatever projects he had going on in the woods. And we would just kind of play and, you know, build forts and do stuff like that. And then when we were older, he would sometimes take us with to help him with some of the things he was working on. And one of the things my dad would always be paying attention to were what the, uh, if there was ruts in the road or not. Like, okay, this road is wet, so it's got these ruts in it. Or, oh, why aren't people, like, driving in different spots in this road so we don't get these big ruts? Because ruts can be formed when it's, well, the soil is wet and muddy, so then you can create a rut. Or a rut can just be formed over time where you're just driving in the same tracks and it kind of kills the dirt or the grass and pushes down the dirt where your, your tires are going. And then the middle kind of still grows up. And so you can see this big um, rut down the middle of the road. And this whole idea of ruts has become an image that we use to talk about our lives, isn't it? That we say, oh, I'm kind of falling into a rut or I'm stuck into a rut and I can't seem to get out of it. And it means we just we're keep doing the same thing over and over again. We came, seem to just kind of drive down the exact same path over and over, staying in this rut that we can't get out of. And I just kind of explained a bit, how do, you know, how do ruts get made? Well, they can be made when the soil is soft and when it's wet. And those ruts then are easy to slip into later when the soil kind of hardens back up again. But then ruts can be made by just following the same path over and over again, whether the soil is wet or not. And when each of us was young, um, you can think of the soil of our lives as kind of being soft and um, wet. Ruts were easily made when we were young, when we were kids, when we were uh, adolescents, teenagers and stuff. So we're forming, uh, ruts can be formed in our lives um, very easily during that time, showing us, okay, this is how the world works. This is kind of the way I'm going to operate in the world. This is how I'm going to do relationships. This is how I'm going to um, function in life. But then even... When dirt is dry, I'm like later in life when we're adults, it's kind of like, okay, we're less malleable, less formable, um, less moldable, but still we can form a rut in our life by, I just do the same thing over and over again, and whether the soil is wet or not, that kind of forms ruts in the road of our life. And relationships can also get into ruts. We can get into unhealthy patterns of just feeling like we just kind of do the same thing over again. We talk about the same thing, we argue about the same thing, we get in fights over the same thing. And there's been times in Katie and I's marriage where we felt like we're just kind of in a rut. And then we've gone and sought marriage counseling to help us get out of that rut. Like, how do we get out of this? We're doing the same thing over and over again. How do we get out of this rut? And so relationships can get into ruts as well. And so think about what what are the ruts in your life? You may not even realize they're ruts because it just feels so normal and natural to you. What are the things you do over and over again? Good habits or bad habits, whatever they are. You're just every week, every day, it's like you just somehow make it to get to doing that behavior, doing that habit. It's like you just do it every week, whether it's good or bad. And think about what are your patterns for relating to people? Like how do you, what do you think about people? How do you talk to people? How do you talk to your kids or your spouse or your <coughs> parents or siblings or people at work? Like what's kind of your rut pattern in those relationships? And as we're uh, finishing up this series in Bad News, Good News, this is the final sermon, as I said, and we're looking at 1 Corinthians 6.11. And what we've seen every week, we're just looking at one verse that tells us the bad news without Christ and the good news with Christ. And so we're seeing that in this verse. And just like um, these other messages we've done, this has a simple outline. The good news for those who know Jesus, or sorry, the bad news for those who know Jesus, the good news for those who know Jesus, and then we'll go into, okay, what's the bad news for people who don't yet know Jesus? 
But what could be the good news for them uh, if they did? And the verse we're looking at, 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, to a church that was in a mess. I mean, (laughs) we saw some of it, how they're talking about there's sexual morality among you. And to a degree that even people who aren't in the church wouldn't tolerate this. There's a a guy sleeping with his um, dad's wife, and then they've got all these relational conflicts that are creating divisions. It's like, you know, we're all about this leader, and, you know, oh, no, we're all about this leader. And so they all have different leaders in the church. People have influenced them, and they're fighting over which one is better. And they're taking each other to court, and they're having these arguments and lawsuits with one another, and they are just having all these things going on. And the poor are being neglected. They're having these uh, heated theological arguments with each other and fighting over their spiritual gifts. And Paul calls them arrogant and boastful. And you can say that these people in this church had fallen into the ruts of their former life. Like, okay, they've said they believe in Jesus, and now they're in this church community. And imagine that we're this church community, hearing these things that Paul is writing to them. And he's seeing all these things, and it's like, okay, uh, the way I'm relating um, to someone, I'm just falling into the rut of how I used to relate to people before I knew Christ. Or I'm falling into this behavior of this rut of how I used to behave before I knew Christ. And then Paul's saying, uh, this isn't how you're supposed to be. Like, God has done something in your life, and this is uh, not okay. And so for us, these the ruts that we developed throughout childhood and adolescence and as adults and then we become Christians, we surrender to Jesus, those just don't automatically go away. God's doing uh, a work in our life so that we start relating to people, we start behaving in ways that are honoring to Him, or honoring to Christ, that are more Christ-like and in alignment with what um, we believe. But those ruts don't go away, and we have to like work through those in our life. And that's the process of growth. And so the bad news for those who know Jesus, throughout chapters... Uh, three through nine of this letter, Paul keeps asking the question, do you not know? He asks it over and over again. So for instance, do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And so he says, do not, do you not know, do you not know? And these are rhetorical questions, meaning the answer is obvious. He he. In his mind, he believes they already know the answer to it. They've already been taught this. They they do know it. And he's saying, don't. He's, but he's looking at their behavior. And he's saying, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you not know X, Y, Z? That, and so what he's pointing out is, um, you know the answer to this question, but you're not living like you know the answer. You're not putting. You're not in alignment with what you know. And it's true for all of us. Most of most of us know more than we actually are obeying. Most of us know more than we're actually living out. We know more than we're putting into practice. And we, you know, we'll say to people, you might give advice to someone and think to yourself, wow, I should really follow my own advice. And because you realize, I know this thing that's good for you, but I'm not doing it myself. Or we might say, um, do as I say, not as I do, because we realize, huh, like I have better advice than I'm actually following in my life. And you know, consider a simple example of diet. We might say, I know eating sweets is bad for me, but I can't stop at just one of Laurel's brownies. <laughs> That's my confession. We all know flossing is good for us, but does that mean that we floss every day, just like our dentist has told us since we were like, you know, I don't know, five years old or something? We don't do it. We, the, same, and the same thing is true for our Christian lives. We know God has forgiven us, but we still can live like 
God doesn't like us, or he's against us, so we have to like work our way for him to love us. Even though we say, I, I know he loves me, or he's forgiven me. We know that God is always good, but then we still complain about how bad our lives are, and what God has given us in our lives. And we know we're God's children, but we keep acting like orphans. There's lots of things we know in our head, but that we aren't living out fully in our lives. And Paul is pointing out how their lives are out of alignment with the gospel. Like this is you've been taught the gospel. This is what you've been taught, and yet you're not living in alignment with that. And, and growth in our life as God's children is about bringing what we do into alignment with the gospel. We all know far more about what about God, what God says about Himself and us and how we're supposed to live than we're actually living out. And so Christian growth is continually bringing ourselves into alignment with that. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, he rebukes the Corinthians for taking one, uh, taking each other to court, for having lawsuits against each other. And he asks some questions to show them why this action doesn't make sense. And we can't get into the, this isn't like the focus of our sermon, so we can't get into the depth of it. And some of these questions, uh, I was kind of like, I, I don't know if I knew that, but he's assuming the Corinthians know that, that they've been taught it. So he says in verse 2, chapter 6, verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And his point in asking this question, question is to show how absurd it is that they're bringing their issues between Christians, Christian brothers before these people who are they're going to judge in the end. It's kind of like you're bringing their issues to someone that they're going to be judged over. So how are you having these people in the world judging your issues you're having as Christians when you as Christians are later going to judge, judge them? So he's saying this is, doesn't make sense. He also asks, do you not know that we are to judge angels? And then he says, if this is the case, how much more should we be able to judge matters pertaining to this life? And then he also says later in verse 9, in more closer to the verse we're looking at, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he, the point is, he's saying, why are you having unrighteous people, wrongdoers, judge your case your cases when they won't even inherit the kingdom of God. He's asking if the, the way they're living disqualifies them from the kingdom. And so why are you, as people in the kingdom, bringing your issues to these people that aren't even a part of the kingdom? Like, what they're disqualified from the kingdom. How are they qualified uh, to judge uh, and you know, adjudicate the issues you're having? And it's kind of like a, a carpenter who builds houses for a living. And he's really good at building houses. And he runs a crew for building houses. And then he buys a dog, so he needs to build a dog house. Um, but he goes to his neighbor, uh, who works at a bank, and says, Hey, can you build this dog house for me? And it's like, wait, aren't, aren't you qualified? You're building these you know, grand houses. Aren't you qualified to build a dog house? How is this guy more qualified to build a dog house than you are? Why are you taking this issue out to him? And Paul wonders... How, there, how can't there be someone among you who's qualified to settle a dispute among you? How isn't there someone competent to do this, that you're bringing your cases to people who have no standing in the church and who will be judged by the church? But he also adds that even if they were to judge these cases within the church, he says just the fact that you're having these lawsuits with each other, that's already a loss for you. If you win or lose the lawsuit... Like, it's already a loss for you that you are even having lawsuits with each other. And he says, you know, why are you fighting this way? Wouldn't you rather suffer wrong than bring your fellow Christian to court? Wouldn't you rather be defrauded rather than bring your fellow Christian to court and have this big argument and dispute with them, trying to 
I get all this stuff from them. And it's even worse than that. He says, not only are you not willing to suffer wrong and defraud, but you yourselves are wronging and defrauding people. So it's not even that they don't want to have that done to them. They're doing it to others, he says in verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Paul's concern with this church is that they are acting like the world and look no different from the world. What they know should be leading them to act differently, but their lives aren't in alignment with what they know. They're stuck in the ruts of their former life without Christ. This is how we dealt with things before we knew Christ, and they're just bringing that into the church instead of letting the gospel transform how they actually deal with one another. And so he gives them, he says all this to them, and then he lists ten different types of wrongdoers in verse 9. He's saying, why are you having wrongdoers or the unrighteous judge your cases? Don't you know that they don't inherit the kingdom of God? And then he lists out in verse 9, before you read the first part, he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And there's two points in this list. The first point is he's questioning, you know, why are you bringing these issues to be judged by the unrighteous, to be judged by wrongdoers who won't inherit the kingdom of God and whom you will judge one day? Why are you bringing these cases to them? How can these wrongdoers be qualified to judge a matter of wrongdoing? Like they're living this life that's completely unrighteous and wrongdoing. How do you expect them to now bring righteousness into your situation? Secondly, it's, it's a warning that if the Corinthians are acting in this way, they are in a position that their, their status in the kingdom of God is questionable. He's saying that you need to watch out that you're not, you're not doing this. And it's not a theoretical list. Because these, it's not like, you know, here's some things in theory that would disqualify you from the kingdom. But these are actually things that are happening in this church. He's already mentioned in verse 8 that some of them are wronging and defrauding each other. He said in Chapter 5, verse 1, there's sexual morality among you, even that you're not addressing, and that even people outside the church wouldn't tolerate. In chapters 8 through 11, he's going to address their involvement in the continuing the, idol, the uh, cult of idolatry, and of continuing to in, engage in those practices of religious worship. So if, even if they, uh, this wasn't going on in the church, which a lot of it is, um, these things are also happening in the city around them. And they were doing these things in their former life before they knew Christ. And so this isn't just like, you know, imagine if somebody was an adulterer. It's like, this was some of you, and there's, you know people who are doing this, and some of you are continuing to do this. And right before this list, he says, do not be deceived. Paul is saying, if this is how you're living, don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. If this describes you, you are in danger of not inheriting the kingdom of God, of not being... Uh, of not going to the kingdom of heaven, of not being entering eternal life with God, of not being in relationship with God. You're in danger instead of your path you're on is toward hell, not toward heaven and a life with him. And he's not talking about like one-time sinful acts, like, oh man, I, that one time in my life, like I drank a little too much and you know woke up hungover, so am I disqualified? That's not what he's saying. This is about a deliberate lifestyle of sin without remorse, that they are deliberately living this way, and they're living in this sin, and he's even said they've been arrogant and boastful. He's saying, your boasting is not good. Like, what's going on there? You shouldn't be boasting about this. You need to watch your life. 
And he's saying, don't be deceived into thinking you can live an unrighteous life as a wrongdoer with no remorse and inherit the kingdom of God. And it's not that our behavior gets us into the kingdom. That's not what it is. It's not, I have to you know, shape up my life, I have to be a good person, and then I get into God's kingdom. But our behavior is an indicator of whether we are in the kingdom. Our behavior is an indicator of our, our status with God. Like, where are we at with God? And a way to think about it is fruit, the fruit of our life, makes faith visible. Fruit makes faith visible. Or actions make allegiance visible. Where, where are you, who are you loyal to? Who are you allegiance to? Who are you going to pledge your allegiance to? Is it Jesus? Or is it to this world? And who, where is your faith at? Is it in yourself and the things of this world? Or is it in Jesus? Faith makes fruit, or fruit makes faith visible. Actions make allegiance visible. And some in this church, he's saying, you are looking so worldly that it's questionable whether you will inherit the kingdom of God. Not because that gets you in, but because God gives people in the kingdom a new life and he empowers them to live differently. And sometimes you see um, these signs. I've been looking at it for like two weeks. I asked Larry to bring this pull it down so you hopefully can see it. Sometimes you see these signs like this in our home or in our family. We, and then it has all these kind of practices or values and stuff. You know, put God first, count our blessings, have faith, say please and thank you and trust and so on. And sometimes... You'll see these are like you know, Hobby Lobby or, or I don't know if Walmart sells them. But definitely Hobby Lobby sells these. So if you're looking for one of these, this is Larry's. So uh, I'm to put it down here so I don't drop it and break it. But you'll see these signs. In our home, we do this. And the, is anyone going to do those things perfectly? Like the, we were living with Larry for the past two weeks. So we do all these things perfectly when in Larry's home. So it's like, hey, if you don't do this perfectly, you're out. Like that's that's not the point. It's not about you know doing it perfectly, but it's about saying this is how people in this household behave. This is how people in this family um, act. This is how we're going to try to live our lives. This is what we value. And Paul is saying, in God's kingdom, in God's family, we don't do these things. Imagine there was a list that said, in our home, we don't. And then it had this list of things here. And then it had another one that was, in our home, we do these things. So this is like, there's other lists like this in the New Testament where it's like, these people aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. And it's not to say, like, if you ever did this once in your life, like, you're out. It's to say, if this is your perpetual lifestyle, um, you're not really even showing you want to be part of the kingdom. You're showing you don't even want Jesus to be king of your life. And that's the whole point of the kingdom if we're not living in those ways. And he's... He's saying these are the marks of God's family. And a break from our past is required. He's trying to say, look, you, this isn't the way you live anymore. Don't be in these old ruts. You're now in the kingdom of God. This isn't the, the way we're going to live our lives. And so what's the good news? Paul lists up these lifestyles, and then he says in verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. Some of you were sexually immoral, doing whatever you wanted to do with your bodies. Some of you were worshiping false gods, looking for them to satisfy you and protect you. Some of you were adulterers. You were cheating on your spouse. Some of you practiced homosexuality, engaging in sexual practices with the same sex. Some of you were thieves, taking what belongs to others. Some of you were greedy, taking as much as you could and always wanting more. Some of you were drunkards, wasting your lives um, by, 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 drink, by drinking yourselves into foolishness. And some of you were revilers, abusing and putting, breaking people down by the, your words. Some of you were swindlers, deceiving. 
in order to take. That's what some of you were, he said. You had no chance of being part of God's kingdom. You were not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You were disqualified from it. And he said, that's what some of you were, but you were washed. Jesus washed you clean of all your filth and all your sin. He was the the bleach to the sin-stained life that you were living. That's what some of you were, but you were sanctified. God set you apart. He set you apart as unique. That's what sanctify means, to set apart, to set them apart as holy. And so he took you out of the trash heap, and he cleaned you up, he washed you, he polished you, and he's going to keep polishing you until he sees his reflection in you. That's what some of you were, but you were justified. In spite of all you did that was wrong and unrighteous in the way you were living, in spite of all the condemnation you deserved, God instead declared you righteous, innocent. You no longer bear the penalty for the life you were living. And that was all done, he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he's the one who made it all possible. He's the one who died the death you deserve. He's the one who's washed you clean by his blood. He, you're set apart just like he was. You're God's beloved child just like he was. And the Spirit of God took what Jesus did and brought it down into your life. And if you want to think about the Father, Son, and Spirit and how God's works in the world um, are uh, Trinitarian in, in shape, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it's that what the Father planned, the Son accomplished, and the Spirit applied. So God plans it, the Son accomplishes it, and the Spirit brings it into our lives to make it real, to say, Jesus died, but the Spirit makes us say, Jesus died for me, and now he, the life that Jesus lived, I'm now living it out um, through the Spirit. And whoever we once were, whatever wrong that made us unable to enter the kingdom of God, that's no longer true of us. We're no longer disqualified from the kingdom based on our past behavior. And even if we slip into that sometimes, that's, he, Paul's reminding them, there's all this horrible stuff going on in this church, and he's saying, that's what some of you were, but you no longer, that's no longer you. That old you died with Christ. That was your former life, and God is doing a work in you. There's a new you now, and he's transforming you, taking you out of those ruts. And he's making, Paul's making an identity statement. He's making this contrast of, this was your life, and such were some of you, but no longer. That is no longer you. He's reminding them how God has broken them from their past so that they can break from their current behavior and the way they're acting. Like, that's not you anymore. Don't go into those old ruts. As we consider the bad news, for those who don't yet know Jesus, I invite you to take those note cards we passed out. And at the beginning of this series, um, you, I'm sure a lot, many of you wrote down a list. We consider a list of people God has put in our life. And even if you have that list somewhere, um, I want to encourage you to write it down again now. Uh, maybe that list has changed. Maybe it's been clarified. And what one way to think about lists of how people who's in your life is some people call it a Frank list. F-R-A-N-C, so it stands for friends, relatives, acquaintances, neighbors, co-workers. Frank, friends, relatives, acquaintances, neighbors, co-workers. And so of these people in your life, who doesn't know God? Or who are you unsure about that you're not, not they might, but I'm not sure. Just take a moment to write your own Frank list of people you want to be praying for. Friends, relatives, acquaintances. Neighbors, coworkers.
you're still adding names, but take a moment as you're writing them and ask God, who on this list do you want me to be intentional with? Who on this list do you want me to be praying for and inviting to surrender their life to Jesus? And that doesn't mean right now you're going to say, hey, you want to know Jesus, but it means who does God, who's God um, working in that he wants you to be moving toward? Ask God that question. Who do you want on this list do you want me to be intentional with? And then circle those names. reality for people on our list or without Christ is that they are living a way that disqualifies them from inheriting God's kingdom. And here's our, how Article 10 of our Statement of Faith puts it. It says, We believe that God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to Him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation eternal consciousness and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth the praise of glorious grace. So for the, the rest of time, those who have not turned to Jesus will live with the penalty of their sin. God doesn't save everyone. He saves those who turn to Jesus. And that's the reality for people on our list who don't know Him. And the people... Let's turn to the good news. The people on our list who don't know Jesus are living lifestyles that put them outside of God's kingdom. But if you're sitting here today trusting in Jesus, that was also you. You were living a lifestyle that disqualified you from entrance into God's kingdom, from entrance to his family, from being saved. They, you were disqualified from it. And though the people on our list may be currently outside of God's kingdom, they're never too far off. They're never beyond God's ability to bring them in. They're never beyond God's ability to rewrite their story, to take them and enter into their life and change how they're living and change their desires to say, I desire God now. I desire, desire to live in His ways. None of us can do that work in another person's life. There's no one too sinful, too bad, too far off that Jesus cannot rescue. No matter your past, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, Jesus can make you new. And all we have to do is say yes to him. That's all it takes. Verse 11 could be, imagine the people in your life, verse 11 could be their story. That's who you once were. You were sexually immoral. You were worshiping everything but God. You were an adulterer. You were practicing homosexuality. You were greedy and stealing from others. You were a crook. You were a drunkard. You were an abuser of others with your foul, foul mouth. That's who you were but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit of God. That's no longer true. You belong to Jesus now. And everything has changed. Every single person on your list, that could be their story. But don't we sometimes think, 
there's no hope for some people. You might have someone in your life that just the way they're living or their attitude towards God, you're kind of like, yeah, there's, I've tried, there's no hope with them. And you know, I don't think anything can be done for them. And do you have people in your life who sleep around with whoever they want? Do you have people in your life cheating on their spouse? Do you have people in your life who are greedy workaholics, only focused on their career and making more money and getting more stuff and going on better vacations? Do you have people in your life who are drinking their life away, half living in bars, drinking day and night, or doing the same thing with a different addictive substance? For some of us, that was our story. That was the story of many of the Corinthians. But no one is beyond God's power. Whatever they're doing, however they're living, for him to reach into their life and pull them out of that pit that they are in and make them his. And maybe you're thinking, well, I have those people in my life, but we don't really know each other. Maybe you wave hi to them as you pull in your driveway or something like that. Or maybe you're thinking, I don't know any people who don't know Jesus at this point in my life, or at least people that... Um, you know, we're talking about these invite cards for our sermon series. I don't know anybody I could actually give that to because it'd feel weird. We've never had a you know, meaningful conversation before. And that's what um, that little booklet that says bless on it with those bless steps is a helpful way for us to think about how can I start um, blessing the people in my life with the presence of God that he's given me. And the B is begin with prayer. Just start praying for them. If you're starting to pray for people, in your life, you don't know Jesus, whether you know them very well or not, that's a great step. And then L is listen, listen to them. E is eat with them or you know, do anything else fun with them. S is serve them or allow them to serve you. And the last one, uh, the last S is story. Share your story about what God's done in your life or share the, the gospel story with them. And so just you can just use that and we're going to be getting more into that in our gospel communities of what that looks like. And that can be a way for you to think, okay, I want to bless people wherever I live, work, and play. I want to bless these people on my friend list. What would that look like to just stop and listen to them, what's going on in their life? Or what would it look like to say, hey, come over for a cookout or you know, whatever it is? I want to pause a bit to give some extra uh, attention to the most controversial and offensive issue on this list, to, uh, on the list in 1 Corinthians 9-11. through 11. Uh, that's offensive and controversial in our modern culture, and that's the uh, homosexuality. It's right there in the list. And the first thing I want you to notice is that homosexuality is put right there alongside other sins we may not get too worried about. I mean, it talks about uh, revilers, which is like people kind of tear people down with their words. And like maybe say, hey, that's not very nice to do that, but um, it's not too big of a deal. Or, or greed. How many of us... Uh, easily hoard our resources for ourselves. And so we need to see that this homosexuality is put right alongside some of these other things that we maybe wouldn't get too worked up about. And so we can often elevate one sin as being way more serious than another sin, even when God doesn't do that. But that being said, some people today, even some Christians, try to argue that the type of homosexuality in the Bible is different than the type of homosexuality we have today. And so they'll say the homosexuality that people are practicing today is monogamous, consenting adults, meaning they're being in a relationship, you know, an exclusive relationship, consenting adults. And so some people say because the homosexuality today is not the same as what it was in the first century, therefore, when it talks about homosexuality in the Bible, that doesn't apply to what we're seeing today. It's a totally different type. 
And so they're saying that type back then was bad. The type today, this is good, this is okay. The Bible doesn't apply to that. But there are scholars uh, who, who are pro-homosexuality, who study the Bible, and they say there's no way to erase the Bible's prohibition against homosexuality. And while it was true that there were some different types back in that in the first century, there was, it was monogamous, consenting adult relationships with the same sex were known in that time. And so it's, you can't really say like, yeah, it wasn't really. They didn't really know about what we have today back then, so it doesn't apply. There's no way around the fact that the Bible prohibits sexual relations with the same sex. So if we want to align our sexual ethics with the Bible, we cannot affirm homosexual behavior. And another hot-button issue that would be right alongside this today is transgenderism, where people feel like, I, am, uh, I was born with the wrong physical body. My gender identity is actually the other, the other gender, so I'm going to go through you know, procedures in order to, get, to begin to be that, that other gender. And the Bible teaches that God makes us male and female. And this doesn't mean that we deny people's same-sex attraction or we deny their gender dysphoria where it kind of feels like, I'm not at home in my own body. There's no reason to deny those things are happening. It's the behavior that um, we're trying to help. We ought to have the deepest compassion for people in these situations. I mean, can you imagine, like, going through your whole life feeling like, well, I know I have a male body, but I just feel like a woman. Gender dysphoria is uh, it's, it's tough. We should have compassion, but the the Bible's teaching on sexuality and gender are the most difficult teachings to hold today in our current society because everything in our culture is against it. You could be called a bigot, you could be called a hater, and you could, you're not going to win a popularity point. But we need to understand that uh, why it can be so heated is because both issues have been raised to a, basically a civil rights issue. And so if you just say, you know, we might say to someone, you know, that's your view on sexuality, that's your view on gender, but no, I just have a different uh, opinion, I have a different perspective on it. But when we're saying, I think homosexuality is wrong, or transgenderism is wrong, people see that as equivalent to saying, I think being black is wrong. I think having a different skin color than white is wrong, because it's been raised up to a civil rights issue of saying people need to have you know, these equal rights. And so we understand that's why it, uh, it can be so offensive to people. And that's how they see it. So it's more complicated than saying to someone, well, you have your opinion and I have mine. Like, that's your perspective, but I have my perspective too. You know, that's uh, like a white supremacist saying, well, you have your opinion that people of all skin colors are equal, but I have my opinion that people of white skin are better. And we just have different points of view. It's like that's what they're hearing if we say, I don't think homosexuality is right, but I'm still going to love you. It's like saying... I don't believe it's right for you to be black, but I'm still going to love you. you know, that's how it's, I'm not saying those are equal, but that's where um, activists have raised it to, and so that's what makes it a complicated thing. But for us, though, we want to accept and affirm our Creator's design for human relationships, for gender. We want to affirm what His design is for human flourishing, and those who affirm homosexuality and transgenderism are rejecting God's design for human flourishing. They want to define right, wrong, good, and bad, on their own terms, rather than God. But then we might ask, what should be our attitude towards people in our lives who are living these lifestyles? Or to someone who would visit our church living a uh, homosexual or transgender lifestyle, or any of the lifestyles that are written in this passage we just looked at. And it's very simple. We focus on Jesus first, not their behavior. 
Nobody changes their behavior to get into the kingdom of God. That's not the first issue. The first issue is your relationship with Jesus. Are you submitted to the Lordship of Christ? And then if somebody says, I'm surrendering to Jesus, they're opening the door for him to come in and start to work through all the rooms of sin they have in their life, just like he's doing in our life. I mean, so many things on this list we probably struggle with. Like, are you too harsh to people in your life? You put them down. Are you holding on to your resources, being greedy? It's like, okay, God is working in the rooms of our life, and so we should let Jesus be the first thing we're looking to see where people are at with him. So whatever people have done, or are currently doing, our attitude should be to welcome them so that they can find Jesus and find healing. And Paul, he recognizes, he says, such work some of you. And some of us would probably say, I mean, my coming to Christ isn't a very dramatic story. It's not very exciting. But the reality is that every single person who's come to Christ is a walking miracle because God says, you have a hard heart. You never come to me without me. So he has to work in our life. And so if you trust in Jesus right now, you're a walking miracle. But think about our stories as we have kind of that conversion story of like, this is how I first came to know Jesus. But we also have transformation stories. And we might have said, you know what, in my life, I used to be a drunkard. In my life, I used to be greedy. In my life, I used to be um, practicing sexual morality, just like doing whatever I wanted with my body. But now, this is what's true of me. So we have those stories of conversion and how God is transforming our lives. And so there's this quote from a book on evangelism, and it says, Your struggles, sufferings, needs, and longings are the best bridge into the lives of others. Your transformation stories are your greatest personal asset for sharing your faith. The point is, we don't need to have all the answers as we're sent into this world, those people on our list. We don't have to be like, this this is all the answers, I'm the expert. It's more like, yeah, I've had those same struggles too, somebody who's in some of these uh, things on this list. And we know what it's like to be in a rut how difficult it is to get out of that, to be seeking our security and our identity and our value and our satisfaction and our comfort from things of this world. We know how difficult it is to come out of those things. So that's what that other sheet is, um, that I gave you guys is for, just taking time to say, God, what have you done in my life? How did I come to know you at first? And now what are those stories of transformation that you're still working in me? And those become the best ways that we can say, you know what, I was like that too, but now God says, and such were some of you, and now this is what's true of me, and this is where I'm still growing. And so if you're, those people on your list start sharing a struggle with you, and you're maybe not sure if they're open to hearing your experience with that, you can just say, can I share with you my experience in the same thing, or I feel like I've gone through something similar, like, can I share what that was like for me? And so that one sheet I gave you is for you to, I encourage you to just take time you know, over the course of a week or a couple weeks, a couple days, and like answer some of those questions at a time of, and make it be a time of worship. Like, this is what was my life was, and now I'm going back and looking at how did God step into my life, and how did he, how did he, has he changed things, and how is he changing things? And that's very important for us to remember. Just in closing, to repeat what I've said the last two weeks, we are Good News Church. We are people who show and tell the good news about God stepped into our lives and totally changed the direction of it. Our story is about what God has done in us and what he's still doing in us and doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We are good. We are people of the good news with good news to share. Let's pray.
God, thank you for stepping into our lives, for changing us, for transforming us. Since then we pray. Amen.